The greatest story ever told is a true story. It is a story of adventures, battles, kings and queens, heroes and villains, good and evil, history and prophecy. It is your story. Come join the adventure of the Bible story. Chapter 124 Facing an Army with Musicians The nation of Judah was in big trouble. A huge enemy army was marching on Jerusalem, and Judah's army was vastly outnumbered. Surrounding communities flooded into Jerusalem for protection, and the people crowded into the temple to ask God for deliverance. After King Jehoshaphat's stirring prayer, a Levite named Jehaziel asked the king for permission to speak. He told the king that God had given him a message to deliver. Climbing up onto a platform, he announced to the crowd, God has told me that tomorrow he will go out to fight for his people. You will not have to lift a hand in battle. Don't be worried about the Ammonites or Edomites. God will take care of them. Hold your peace and see the salvation of God. The only thing God commands you to do is go out to the enemy camp to see for yourselves how he will fight for his people who obey him. This was fantastic news. Jehoshaphat was excited to have his prayer answered so quickly. Moved with emotion, he bowed himself to the ground and gave thanks to God. The rest of his people, following his example, fell down in prayer too. Afterward, the Levites sang songs and praised God with musical instruments. Early the next morning, Jehoshaphat led the army of Judah outside the city and toward the place Jehaziel said God had instructed them to go to. But before leaving earshot of the walls of Jerusalem, Jehoshaphat gave the people a wonderful piece of advice with a marvelous promise, one that we would do well to heed even today. Believe in the Eternal, your God, so shall you be established, he said. Believe his prophets, so shall you prosper. After this moving address, Jehoshaphat mustered his army, but as a powerful sign of his faith in God's promise of victory, he did something extremely unusual, something that most people would have considered preposterous. Instead of Judah's heavily armored shock troops out front, Jehoshaphat appointed many singers and musicians to go before the army, playing instruments and singing praises to God for his mercy. Behind the army came a large crowd of hobbling old people and racing and skipping young people who wished to see exactly how God would deliver them from their enemies. As soon as God saw the people of Judah faithfully obeying and trusting him, he immediately set out to foil the invading army. Just a few miles to the east, 
the armies of the Moabites, Ammonites, and soldiers of Seir obliviously marched toward their doom. As the three armies moved deeper into Judah, without meeting any resistance, their lust for treasure grew. Those people of Judah must be afraid of us, they spoke among themselves. It won't be long before we are plundering their capital city of Jerusalem. The overconfident soldiers soon began wondering why they needed such a huge army. They didn't want to split the spoils among so many people. Soldiers from the Ammonites and Moabites especially regret it, inviting the men from Seir along. Eventually, the grumbling turned into an evil plot of betrayal. The soldiers of Seir didn't see their destruction until it was too late. Ammonite and Moabite soldiers who pretended to be their friends only moments before suddenly turned on them. They attacked the soldiers of Seir with savage ferocity. The men from Seir were unable to put up an organized defense and were cut down where they stood. Not a single one escaped the bloody treachery. The greedy Ammonite and Moabite soldiers quickly began looting the bodies and dividing the spoil. But their glee did not last long. Small disagreements erupted over who would get what. Tempers fled. The arguments turned into fights. Moments later, the two armies were at each other's throats. The treasure lust, which had become bloodlust, didn't end until every single soldier was dying of wounds or dead. Jehoshaphat and the army of Judah arrived at the watchtower in the wilderness near the place Jehaziel told them to go just moments too late to see the fighting. From the top of the tower, dead bodies could be seen covering the landscape. There is nothing resembling a human moving anywhere, reported a scout. Only vultures. It looks like they turned on each other, sir. There are thousands of them, scattered everywhere. They are all dead. God performed a mighty miracle to protect his people, a trial that had threatened the survival of the nation became a rich blessing. Judah's soldiers quickly moved to collect all the valuables from the battlefield. So much booty was left by the invaders that it took the entire army and all the people three days to gather all the weapons, food, clothing, and other valuable items. On the fourth day, the soldiers assembled together to thank God for what he had done. It was a fantastic sight to the cheering people of Jerusalem to see the army of Judah return. They joyously welcomed them home. Once again, the soldiers were led by singing Levites, accompanied by bagpipes, harps, and trumpets. The happy procession culminated at the entrance to the temple, where Jehoshaphat again reminded the rejoicing people of the source for their deliverance. In the nations surrounding Judah, word soon spread about the battle. 
Unconfirmed reports emerged of a valley littered with dead corpse. Other travelers passed on news that not a single soldier from the army of Judah had been injured. At first, the kings of Edom, Moab, and Seir were not worried about the rumors. But after days passed with no reports detailing the results of the invasion, they sent investigators to find out what was happening. When the messengers returned, the kings were dismayed to learn that the rumors were true. A new respect for the powerful God of Judah took hold in these nations. And for the next few years, there was peace in Judah. During these years of peace, King Jehoshaphat embarked on an ambitious plan to build a seagoing fleet of merchant ships. This massive fleet would be the biggest to set sail from Judah since the time of King Solomon. It would travel to Arabia, Africa, and perhaps India to bring back furs, spices, fabrics, and exotic valuables. The fleet would even sail to the land of Ophir to bring home gold, just as Solomon once did. But this plan did not have God's approval. The reason God did not bless this project was because of Jehoshaphat's business partner in the venture, the evil Israelite king Ahaziah. Ahaziah was the son of corrupt King Ahab and Queen Jezebel of Israel. When Ahab died, Ahaziah became the next king. He ruled much like his parents, causing his people to worship idols and sacrifice to pagan gods. He only ruled Israel for about two years before he died. Jehoshaphat should have known better than to team up with Ahaziah he should have remembered his disastrous alliance with Ahab against the Syrians. Nevertheless, he joined together with Ahaziah to build ships that would sail from the city of Ezion-Geber in southern Judah on the Red Sea. By collaborating, the kings noted that their fleet would be stronger. Neither one would have to risk as much money or as many men and they could share the profits. When the fleet was almost finished, a man named Eliezer came to Jehoshaphat with a warning. God is not happy that you have made an alliance with Ahaziah, said the man. He explained that Ahaziah was an enemy of God who persecuted God-faring Israelites, just as his parents had. Befriending him gave the appearance that Jehoshaphat condoned Ahaziah's evil actions. Perhaps Jehoshaphat thought he would have a positive influence on Ahaziah, but in reality, it is always the negative influence in such situations that wins out. God will not bless this venture, continued Eliezer. Your ships will be broken before they even set sail. Jehoshaphat was unhappy at this news. After deliberating, 
he decided to follow the Prophet's admonition and break off his venture with Ahaziah, even at the risk of ruining the peaceful relations between Israel and Judah. Ahaziah was furious, especially because of all the prophets he would miss out on. But Jehoshaphat knew better than to go against God's specific warning. Jehoshaphat did, however, continue building the fleet on his own, hoping that God would change his mind now that Ahaziah was not involved. Once all the great ships were finished, King Jehoshaphat traveled to Izion Giber to preside over a banner-filled celebration ceremony to inaugurate their launch. A great crowd of people turned out to hear what the king would say. When the king stepped out on the podium to speak, he was interrupted by a tremendous flash of lightning and boom of thunder that seemed to come out of nowhere. Suddenly, the wind gusted with hurricane force magnitude, driving massive tidal surges toward the docks on which the ships were moored. The waves slammed into the wooden vessels, smashing them against the piers and driving them up onto the beach. Other ships broke their anchor lines and smashed into each other like tiny toys. Timbers snapped, heels cracked, and sails were ripped to shreds. Within moments, the entire fleet was destroyed or sunk. Jehoshaphat, staring at all the wreckage, remembered the prophecy of Eliezer. Now he wished he hadn't bothered finishing the fleet and had instead completely heeded God's warning. Days later, when Ahaziah heard the news, he sent Jehoshaphat a letter of condolence, encouraging him to rebuild the fleet and this time to include him in the venture. But Jehoshaphat had learned his lesson. He immediately declined. Back in Israel, Ahaziah was dealing with some other unwelcome news. The Moabites were rebelling against him. Since the time of King David, the Moabites had paid Israel tribute. But since Ahab's death, they refused to pay anything. Ahaziah was not happy. Besides the fact that this was money his nation desperately needed, the Moabites' rebellion was a deep affront to his prestige. He immediately began drawing up plans to punish the Moabites. His top generals were called in to discuss invasion. Supplies were collected, the army was marshaled, but then catastrophe struck. As Ahaziah was walking along the roof of his house one evening, he stepped on some lattice that covered his bedroom skylight. The normally strong material had rotted and it suddenly gave way. Ahaziah plunged through to the floor below. Although none of his bones were visibly broken, Ahaziah was shaken emotionally. He lay in bed all night and the rest of the day. But instead of improving, by morning, 
his condition had deteriorated. He felt nauseous and suffered fevers. Evidently, Ahazia had damaged some internal organs in his fall. None of the physicians or priests in Israel could determine what was wrong with the king. Meanwhile, searing pain started to develop. Instead of sending for a prophet of God to pray for his healing, he decided to send messengers to go inquire after Balzibub, the pagan medicine god of Ekron. Balzibub was worshipped by the Philistines, who thought this giant idol had powers to heal people. This god was also known as the god of flies. Pagan believers had observed that maggots would appear on rotten food and they foolishly took this as proof that Balzibub could bring life from the dead. Go to Ekron and find out if I will recover from this disease, Ahazia told his servants. Make sure you take plenty of gifts to give to the priests in order to ensure Balzibub is favorable. The short trip to Ekron, which was located to the south of Samaria and about 30 miles east of Jerusalem, was an easy journey. Yet, the men had hardly started when an unusual-looking man approached them and demanded to know why they were wasting their time going to consult the god of Ekron instead of the living god of Israel. Take this message to the king, the man ordered. Tell him, God says that since he foolishly decided to put his faith in the god of flies to heal him instead of the true god, he will not get out of his bed. He will soon die. Take this message to him immediately because he doesn't have much time left. The strange man's commanding tone and the fact that he knew so much about their mission convinced the men to hurry back to Ahazia when they relayed the message. However, the king was not impressed. Why are you back so soon? demanded Ahazia. I thought I gave you a job to do. Don't you know I am in pain? After the servants told Ahazia what had happened and that the man said he would die, Ahazia got even angrier. You allowed some crazy kook to distract you, yelled the king. And you didn't even get his name. Tell me, what did this person look like? He was a strong-looking elderly man, very hairy. He was wearing a robe with a thick leather belt, came the reply. Elijah, exclaimed Ahazia. It must be him. That sounds exactly like his description. He has plagued my family since before I was born. I want him brought to me at once. Ahazia sent out a captain of the army with 50 men to track down Elijah. It didn't take long for them to find him. He was sitting on a small hill not far from where he had met the king's servants earlier. You there, up on the hill, demanded the captain as he approached. Are you that Elijah who claims to be a prophet of God? Yes, I am he, replied Elijah. Then get your raggedy self down here before I drag you off this hill, ordered the captain. The king wants you immediately. You can make this easy on yourself or hard. Either way, you are coming with me. 
you hairy old goat. Many of the soldiers broke out into laughter as they pictured their captain kicking and dragging the man down the hill. You better start praying to that god of yours because when I am done with you, you will wish you had run down the hill, the captain continued as he began climbing the hill. Prophesy this, O prophet of God, which foot am I going to boot you down the hill with first? Elijah stared at the army commander. You say I am a prophet of God, he said. Fair enough, if that is true. Then let fire come down from heaven and burn you up. The commander barely began to smirk before searing lightning bolts blasted the ground around the 50 soldiers, burning them up. A moment later, another intense lightning bolt struck the disrespectful commander, killing him too. 51 men lay dead at the bottom of the hill. When those men didn't return, King Ahaziah sent another captain with 50 men. These men acted similarly to the first bunch instead of approaching God's prophet with respect or even servility. They arrogantly ordered Elijah to come off the hill. The king demands that you come immediately, the senior commander said, and then ordered his men to grab Elijah. I don't care what God you supposedly pray to, he continued. When the king tells you to do something, you had better do it right away. Moments later, lightning streaked down from the clear sky, instantly electrocuting the 51 men, just as it had the first group. Having lost contact with this second group, once again, King Ahaziah sent another captain with 50 men. Turning to his least-liked officer, he ordered, Don't bother returning unless it is with Elijah in tow. Snapping to attention, the officer strode briskly from the king's chamber. On his way out, he passed a brightly burning fireplace, filled with glowing embers. Blackened cinders surrounded the earth. He couldn't help but wonder whether this would be his last mission. To be continued in our next episode and continue the adventure by reading the Bible story, find it under the Resources tab at pcg.church. 